0: From the McGrath Institute for Church Life and OSV Podcasts, this is Church Life Today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, NCEA. Does your community need help measuring the heart of your religious education? Are you wondering if your community provides a sense of belonging for members? NCEA Rise is a family of comprehensive assessments designed to measure what your community knows and feels about the faith. But it doesn't stop there. Results can be for instructional planning, professional development, community engagement, and more. NCEA provides meaningful network and resource support for its members. Find out more about NCEA Rise at www.ncearise.org. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed to his Father that they may all be one. He meant us, his disciples. As he entered into his passion, Jesus began to offer himself for our unity in him, with him, through him, sharing in his union with the Father by the Holy Spirit. And yet, if we look around the church today, disunity may be more apparent than unity. In his new book, acclaimed author and moral theologian Charlie Camosi seeks to help Catholics especially Catholics in the U.S., to rediscover our call to unity and to begin engaging with each other in a way that does not cancel out disagreements, but rather allows us to find unity in diversity. The book is One Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity, out now from Ave Maria Press. Dr. Komosi joins me to talk about the sources of disunion, the pathways towards reunion, and the importance of reclaiming our unity in Christ. Charlie, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. So Charlie, you've written this book on reclaiming Catholic unity, which obviously implies that we have lost some aspect of our unity, especially as U.S. Catholics. So I thought we'd begin by maybe trying to diagnose the disease a little bit. What are the sources or causes that you see of our disunity?
1: I'm sure lots of people have lots of different opinions about this. (laughs) So um, and that's one of the goals I have in the book, actually, is to forward a lot of those views in the context of of one church. Um, But I guess the primary source of disunity uh, that I I am concerned about is one that comes from idolatry, a kind of political idolatry, where um, our life as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as a result of our baptism is superseded um, by an idolatrous focus often, not always, but often on a kind of secular politics, right? A kind of left-right politics, or at least a political community associated with the left or the right, or maybe even more precisely, a community associated with hatred of the left or the right mm-hmm. by some other um, uh, kind of amorphous community, the thing that unites them being there, um, not being them, right? The other. Right. And so and so, to the extent that, that those idolatries um, you know really function as 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 motivating for so many Catholics, um, I think that's where the foundational problem lies.
0: How would you describe the difference between you know somebody who has political views and somebody who's maybe crossed over into political idolatry as you're speaking of here?
1: Yeah. Um, Excellent question. Um, Of course, it's good to participate in politics. I think it's good to care about political outcomes and um, the common good, obviously, as it relates to politics. The problem, of course, is at least in light of what I just said, is when a secular political vision that is sometimes at variance with the gospel and the teaching of the church, maybe often at variance with the teaching of the church, kind of gets excused or kind of uh, explained away or um, Otherwise, uh, kind of ignored or, or dissembled in a way that um, that uh, that is problematic. And and so the key is to see one's political um, activity, one's political commitments, through the lens of the church rather than the other way around. Right. So instead of seeing um, it that way, often the idolatry comes in when one's secular political commitments. Uh, determines the way one sees the church mm. and um and you can see the kind of uh, idolatry directly at play right there in that situation
0: one thing i really appreciate and i think it's just fundamental to what you're doing i think you say this right from the start is this isn't about like getting past our disagreements like if people people have political views not just outside of the church but also views within the church about uh, liturgy and worship about the priority of things about uh, prayer and social life, et cetera. It's not to bracket those, put them to the side and find some kind of, you know, milquetoast agreement, but you actually want to help us to have better, more productive disagreements. So maybe take us through that, like the difference between wanting to just find some kind of, uh, soft common ground and really being able to disagree better.
1: Right. Uh, I sense this question comes from a veteran teacher who tries to do this in the classroom.
0: So, um,
1: (laughs) I, I at least try to do that as well. It's, it's an achievement to, to, to get to the actual disagreement, right. Mm. To have an actual argument and it can be a very good thing for whatever community one is a part of, um, whether it's a family, a church, a classroom, a polity. Um, and in fact, it's sometimes through those arguments, um, that creative solutions are found, right. That things that we may not have come across before, through this kind of particular, this particular kind of encounter, we can um, have a kind of unity and diversity that is creative and not destructive um, for whatever communities involved in, this, involved in. In case, in this case, we're talking about uh, the church, and and I guess anybody who's um, spent any time thinking about church history at all knows that this kind of disagreement is just um, has been at at the heart uh, of the church from the beginning. I mean, we have. Um, Peter coming to Antioch and Paul going to Peter, um, and telling him off to his face, right. Uh, from like at the very beginning, these, these two pillars of the church, whose feast days we celebrate together, right. As pillars of the church, um, uh, had this very serious disagreement. And, uh, I created a, um, along with Ave Maria, um, a discussion guide for the, for, for the book, which is, which is essentially a, a novena to Saints Peter and Paul with that (laughs) particular, um, with that particular moment and that particular insight in mind. So yes, let's have, you know, if, if people are going to really come together and discuss this book, they're going to have disagreements. If it's a truly diverse group of people, a truly Catholic group of people, they're going to have disagreements. But again, it's important to see those disagreements in the
0: right context. Hmm. The way in which you construct the book for people who haven't yet read it, uh, each of the chapters follows a, a similar sort of pattern. Like you take us through different ways of approaching or coming to a new understanding we might say, of different types or different sort of flavors of Catholics, let's put it that way. And one of the things you do right at the beginning of each chapter is you sort of present a caricature of this particular type of Christian or that particular type of Christian. And you follow that up with a real or actual story of somebody who would fit this description, but not the character, the the sort of thin uh portrait that is there in the caricature. Can you take us through maybe as an example, one or a couple of these uh caricatures that we might recognize and then maybe show us a little bit of the real story that that thickens it up a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um I start um in the well I guess the second chapter in the book with um a caricature of um uh, you know, so-called Vatican II, uh, spirit of Vatican II boomers. And, uh, (laughs) boomers. I say, Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I say that, I say that with love, as you'll understand in a, in a minute here. Um, uh, the subtitle, which I go through each, each chapter has a subtitle, which thickens out the caricature, right. Is the kind of in their bones Catholic. And, um, uh, but the caricature as, probably many listeners know it goes something like this okay these are um these are people who have sold out to a kind of liberal or progressive culture um they don't really um put god or the church in any sort of real priority vis-a-vis the culture they kind of sold us out in fact that's one of the reasons why so many have left the church there it's precisely this generation selling out this way that has made the church just kind of nothing that anybody would want to choose apart from the broader culture itself. And they're at bottom, they're kind of self-centered, like all boomers are, you know, that's a caricature, right? Um, uh-huh. Or most boomers are. And you hear this a lot these days now, especially with boomers continuing to hold on to power in the culture, right? They just can't let go of themselves. They can't pass it on to the next generation. Um and in the book, I mean there are you know there are kernels you could take out of those caricatures, which are important. But maybe even more importantly, that sort of thin caricature needs to get thickened out out by stories of actual (laughs) Spirit of Attica two boomers, right? Um, I mean, these are people who, for instance, actually believe in the Holy Spirit, right? They believe there's some kind of enchanted reality that the Holy Spirit inhabits and is active with regard to in the world today. Um, And that is really, um, in many ways, a very countercultural thing, um, especially as we Head more and more um, into a post-Christian culture in many contexts, not all contexts, but in many contexts. So, so what a wonderful gift that is, right, to the church. People who actually believe in God and believe in the Holy Spirit. It may sound simple, but it's not. Or it's not. It may be simple, but it's it's not unimportant at all. And then also, I mean, the, the caricature of this is a me generation or focused on the self. I mean. This is a generation which um, rejected the kind of slacktivism that is present so much, especially online today, but a, a generation that got up off their couches and actually did stuff. Right. Um, took it upon themselves to do stuff for the church and to mark for um, and with marginalized populations um, in justice centered kind of outreach. Um, and and let's face it, right now, if you go into your average—not every parish, again—but you go into your average parish, who are the folks who are showing up to the events and getting things done? Right, they're spirit of Vatican II boomers in many ways. Um, and and in some ways, uh, you know, there is something to the critique about what happened after Vatican II that happened to many churches. Um, obviously, so it's complex, but uh, so there is something to be said about okay, like you know, things didn't go well after Vatican II in terms of. Membership in the church. But on the other hand, there's a more complex story to tell about a kind of uh, approach of Spirit of Vatican II boomers that welcomes people into the church, that allows them uh, to stay and remain in the church, even if they have questions, right? And that person was me. So I I was very much uh, in my... Um, undergraduate days, you know, I was a philosophy major at Notre Dame. I was going to figure everything out intellectually. And my, my, uh, my senior thesis was on the logical problem of the Trinity. I was a 22 year old who was going to solve the logical problem of the Trinity in a senior thesis. Right. Um, uh, uh, and then when that proved uh, really problematic and uh, not a good way to go, I kind of was in a bad place. You know, I was basically an agnostic. I didn't think any of this made intellectual sense, but it was being raised as a, by a spirit of Vatican II boomer, my mother, um, who never allowed me, that being raised by that person, never really allowed me to totally reject it. It was in my bones the way it was and remains in her bones. And it really did provide, I think, a way for me to have a reversion. This is not an unusual story today. And I think we actually need to promote this more than the church, focus on, um, you know, falling away Catholics and reversion. Um, In some ways, it was being raised, in many ways, it was being raised by the spirit of Vatican II Catholic which, which didn't let me kind of drift off into the darkness of space or whatever metaphor we want to use, but kept me, you know, even though I was kind of rejecting it, basically an agnostic, I was still a Catholic agnostic in many ways. And, um, and it was being raised by her. Um, and that and my story is not unusual. This is this has happened for many, many people.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Charlie Camosi, professor of medical humanities at Creighton University School of Medicine, We're discussing his newest book, One Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity. You know, Charlie, something that I started thinking about as I was reading through your book was um, there's the issue, of course, of the way in which we look upon others and create these caricatures of them. We sort of stereotype and pigeonhole them into these, these sets of descriptions, dismiss them too quickly. And then I also started to wonder about do some of us actually uh, curry some blame for allowing ourselves to be reduced to mm. what the caricatures actually prescribed? By that, I mean there's the one issue of like giving a thicker account of someone else, but maybe I myself have allowed myself to become just too thin. Like I've actually mm. entered into um, this sort of thin, thin profile. I don't know. I just want to put that forward and see if this is something that you think might hold some weight. I haven't thought all the way through on it, but I'm I'm just wondering what you might think about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think it's particularly uh, problematic today where um, so much of what gets rewarded in so many corners of life, but especially public life, Um, is a kind of projection of one's very thin, not complex identity online, right? Mm. So to fit into a particular kind of box or particular kind of community, a particular kind of approach that one can, um, you know, have and curate uh, based on the kind of pictures you choose to post or the kind of places you say that you're visiting or the kind of friends that you have or the kind of um, people you admire. So to the extent that... um, you know, a very thick uh, um, kind of identity, which doesn't fit into those boxes, which I, which I take to be a Catholic one, uh-huh. um, uh, that's, a, that's a deep problem. And um, it's a structural problem. It's a structural uh, problem that we might relate to structures of sin even, and um, and, and therefore deserve a specific concern. I mean, it's, it's not like it wasn't there before, but, but the structures now in place really reward Those kind of um, thin, um, you know, self-identifiers or again, curating your own kind of thin identity. Um, And the structures do not reward, Mm. uh, you know, folks who who, who intentionally uh, try to cultivate something else.
0: Yeah, you make this comment early on in the book. I think you say something like the monetization of data on social platforms fuels the dynamics of divisiveness. So, in other words, there are forces in the world... Uh, that are actually pushing us away from each other for profit. like there's actually a business plan behind this. You therefore, as I think you're you're getting to here, you therefore distinguish between the performative virtual world of social media and the real life embodied interactions among real people sharing the same real space. So maybe take us through that. like the how much of this depends on, being real people in real space really together and maybe some distance from that curated social media space, the digitized space. Yeah.
1: I mean, so many people have had, had so much to say about this. That's good. You know, it's tough to say anything new or interesting here, but, um, but I think it is worth underscoring without being a, you know, a a complete, um, uh, you know, skeptic with regard to to virtual or, or social media uh, platforms. I mean, I think if we're just going to be evangelical Catholics, you know, mm. spreaders of the gospel, we have to be there if we're going to meet young people, especially. But we have to be there in the right way and in a way that does um, emphasize the importance of, of embodied personal interactions, which, um, you know, are, again, deeply Catholic, right? The kind of embodied nature of this is at the heart of what it means to be catholic and um that's why it was so devastating to be away from each other i think so much during um at least the early part of the pandemic middle part of the pandemic and um and why we have a lot of work to do in in terms of actually recovering those kind of embodied uh, those spaces where those embodied relationships need need to take place but in some ways it's also a very exciting time right because it's it's a time where um Again, especially young people can kind of feel this. They kind of feel, you probably experienced this in the classroom dealing with young people. They kind of feel that they're not who they should be, that this is a kind of unhealthy place for them to be. And um, and embodied interactions can, I mean, they can be bad, of like all like all interactions, but they can also be extremely healthy and very significantly, they can also blow up a lot of these caricatures, right? So if you have a particular caricature from a, from seeing all these thin um curated uh identities online and then you meet somebody right who is in person not at all like that thin caricature that you've quote unquote encountered online but you actually encounter a real person in the thickness and fullness of who they are. It can blow you away in a way that you know can help create the conditions for the possibility of actually seeing that person as a brother and sister in christ instead of that individual that you're um, in some ways your own identity is is invested in reject right because all the reasons we just mentioned. So, so yeah, yes to 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 being part of virtual and social media spaces, but always, always, always um, with a fullness of understanding of, of the essential of, of the embodied, essential nature of the embodied encounter as well.
0: Mm. That makes me think of something that you talked about actually in your conclusion. You had a remark about uh, ter- re- sort of reclaiming the territorial parish. So, mm. sort of pushing back against a little bit this parish shopping phenomenon uh, where you sort of, you know, and this may be too quick of a comment, you sort of cluster around things that you like or other people that you like or the sort of worship that you like versus, you know, actually committing to the the parish that is sort of responsible for your geographic neighborhood. Can you talk about that and how this is a, a sort of counter practice that might, you know, gently or very boldly push against some of the other things you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So you could have an embodied encounter with someone who uh, does little, but affirm your biases along the, you know, the thin (laughs) caricature line. So, so if you, if you just have people like that in your orbit, it's, it's worse, not better. Um, But, but again, if you focus on your literal neighbors, right, your territorial parish, it's not perfect because we are, you know, sorting even geographically in ways that are maybe unhelpful um, in terms of having actual diversity of opinion, but it's not as bad as, you know, the things you do when you have an algorithm, which pushes you towards things you already agree with, or the outrage porn or whatever it is that the algorithm online is pushing you to, to make money for whoever is monetizing your, your eyeballs. But um, if, it's not perfect again, but if we do make a commitment and I'm, I'm guilty of this as anyone, I'm not holding myself up here as somebody who does this perfectly. In fact, we're maybe thinking of, um, of moving uh, fairly soon and, uh, and we're thinking about parishes right? And we're thinking, well, you know, do we want this kind of parish, do we want that kind of parish, you know? Um, especially related to the school and the, so there are there are some concerns along those lines. But, but if it's just about I need to be in a safe space where all my intellectual and theological biases and political biases are confirmed, um, that's a deep problem. And um, and what going to your territorial parish often, though not always does, is allow you to engage with brothers and sisters in Christ who are literally your brothers and sisters, right? In Christ via baptism. Um, and be, be around people you wouldn't otherwise be around and be confronted with the, again, embodied encounter with somebody you wouldn't otherwise encounter. Um, but to the extent that we don't do that, like if we say, oh, I, I, I'm allergic to a guitar mask, I can't possibly go to a place that has a guitar mask, or I'm allergic to any place that we even think about having the Latin mass or I can't imagine being at a place that um, is friendly to gays and lesbians, or I couldn't imagine being in a place that wasn't, you know, overly friendly to um, to every, uh, you know, organization uh, like that. Um, then we're just lost something about what it means to be church. We've lost something about, you know, what it means to have true unity in genuine diversity, which is, you know, the theme of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. My guest is Charlie Camosi, professor of medical humanities at Creighton University School of Medicine. We're discussing his newest book, One Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity, out now from Ave Maria Press. You know, thinking about that practice of even just how we allow ourselves to engage in a parish territorially or shopping or any of these things, it it also makes me think about sort of how you began, which is sort of the importing of the political categories, these political idolatries sometimes into our identification as Christians. But it would seem to me what you're promoting in the book, because it really is about Christian unity, it's about reclaiming our unity as especially Catholics, is that this is something that maybe begins within the church, but clearly shouldn't stop in the church. It's something that grows outwards as a sign to the greater society and perhaps a different way of engaging in civic uh, civic life. So can you speak about that a little bit in terms of now sort of reversing the direction from Christian unity towards a sort of healthier political and civic life?
1: Yeah, I I, I appreciate that question and that nudge no, to move in that direction. Yeah. Um, the church, of course, is called to be salt and light in many ways, and this would be an important way, particularly at this moment. Um, not just because of we've had similar problems as a as a polity, as a country, um, for decades now, um, or maybe again since, since the founding of the country, yeah. it might be part of the human condition right. uh, here. Um, but, but now we are, it seems to me, in this kind of political moment of, of creativity, creative destruction, ferment. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm not even sure what the Republican Party is right now as a positive vision rather than something opposing uh, Democrats or the left. Um, there is no for, uh, party platform, in fact, you know, and, and we just had this huge dust up over leadership that is totally unsurprising given all this. But what, you know, on the one hand, that's, the, you might see that as, one might see that as a problem. But on the other hand, that's really a wonderful opportunity for the church to kind of inject itself in these discussions and say, hey, whatever this could become, maybe it looks different, right? If we can get beyond these thin caricatures we have of each other, which are often left over from the early 1980s, in fact, right, um, about about these, these kinds of things. They get perpetuated, again, via social media algorithms and kind of legacy media and all sorts of other things. But wow, like. Could the Republican Party actually reflect Catholic social teaching in a particular way? It might. There are people in the Republican Party right now, though they might not use the phrase Catholic social teaching, who want to kind of reform it in a way that would be much more consistent with Catholic social teaching. What a beautiful thing that could be if if, if Catholics could faithfully engage in those, in those, uh, in those ways that could do that. Similarly with with Democrats, I don't think it's quite a long um, further along uh, as, as far along as, as with Republicans, but I know a lot of Democrats, especially when it comes to pro-life issues who say like, man, oh man, I just wish this party would in some way um, just throw a bone to pro-lifers who who would (laughs) desperately want to be part of the democratic party, but just want something that says that we're welcome as part of this party. Right. So if, if for instance, Catholic Democrats who are more attuned, and again, back to your point about, you know, Catholics disagreeing though and being political, but having the church as the center Right, to be able to move and shake and be in those spaces and say, you know what, this kind of you know, abortion up to birth for uh paid for by taxpayers ain't working for us. It would be great if if, if Catholics could engage in in, in that way and in, in pushing um, a democratic party in a way that would be more in line with, with the church's teaching. But having the church's teaching, the church's vision, the gospel of Jesus Christ being at the center of those things mm. um is the key.
0: Yeah. I'd love to, you know, as we bring this towards the end, think about the way in which um, you're really promoting a type of education or formation in what you've given us here. As you say, this book is in part a guidebook or a field guide. And certainly in the, the discussion guide, the workbook that goes along with it that Ave Maria Press put together with you, it, it nudges us even more in that direction. To This is something to read, but it's also something to start practicing and do. So could you talk about how... You know, what is important or the importance of forming people, educating people towards this kind of engagement and what we might have to do to shift towards that kind of formation or education from where we are now?
1: Yeah, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this in the context even of Catholic education more broadly, especially as I think about my four-year-old son starting kindergarten next year and and. And different options that are available and the, again the ferment that's going on and the creative destruction that's going on even within education right now. Uh, but, to the extent that education um, and and education in the church was, was a matter of this, um, you know, educated person in front of the classroom kind of feeding information to, you know, a, a group of people who are writing it down on a piece of paper with a pencil or a pen. Um, if that's the model, uh, we've, we've lost the opportunity here that's before us, right? We have an opportunity to work with each other in a much more creative and interesting way, um, a community-based way. Um, I, I keep thinking about these Catholic, um, uh, small Catholic communities that are creating like almost like pods of homeschoolers. So it's not really homeschool, but we thought of when we were growing up, it's, it's much more about ha- having actual expertise and teachers and communities and um, and it's not even clear what to call it because the categories almost fail. But, but, but that's, I guess, what I have in mind for people um, reading this book, engaging this book, you know, doing it in the context of the community itself, uh, being willing to suffer with each other, have compassion for each other. Um, I'm a big fan of the Focolare and the Focolare's methodology really shows up a lot in this book. And The Focolare are under no uh, illusions about what some of this will involve and and, in some ways if you really want to have an embodied encounter and have true unity and diversity you got to be willing to suffer as jesus forsaken suffered jesus forsaken on the cross my god my god why have you abandoned me um and i've experienced that myself frankly and um and so many others have who who put themselves in this in this place so but that's easier that's more easily done if you do it in the context of a community that's structured that that is starts with the presumption of love I also talk about another insight of the vocabulary, be the first to love, right? Um, And you could talk about these things all you want, but, you know, to to make the Aristotelian point, until you actually put them in practice and make them a habit, you don't really understand what they mean or what they entail. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I hope in some ways um, the use of the book involves, is putting these things into practice.
0: Mm, Well said. The book, again, is One Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity. It is out now from Ave Maria Press, the author, Professor Dr. Charlie Camosi. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation and for this wonderful book and uh, inspiration to get started on this work of reunification.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts.
1: To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.